Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. This is God's word. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you in, at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and affliction abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my, set my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the, the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. If someone you didn't know asked you to introduce yourself, what would you say? What is the story that you tell others to help them to get to know you? What parts of your history do you include? Or perhaps even a better question, an insightful question, a one that we ought to ask ourselves is what parts do we leave out of the story we tell others about ourselves and why? For the way we tell our story says a lot about our perception of ourselves and the vision that we want others to have of us. Now, when Paul tells his story in these verses to the Ephesian elders, he is not engaging in the scenario we have just considered, and yet the same concerns face us. For what he puts into this historical prologue and the facts uh, he adds to the story tells us what he intends or uh, directs us in how he wants us to understand the point of the story. You see, he doesn't tell them anything new. In fact, he asserts that they know exactly who he is and what he has done. And yet, this is a selective narrative. It is a story to make a point. And this should not disturb us or cause us to question Paul's veracity. After all, if you were to perfectly, sequentially tell the story of your life, it would be boring and painfully slow. And if you doubt that, I'm not saying that you have a dull and boring life, but think about telling just the story of today in a perfectly truthful, sequential story starting with, I woke up, and then I went to the bathroom, and I did some things in the bathroom, and then I went to make a breakfast, and then I did some other things. I put on clothes. I got in the car. If you were to tell the story in absolutely agonizing detail, uh, we would all go to sleep, and we would completely miss, if you had a point to the story at all, what the point was. And so you have to be selective if you have an object for the story. And uh, Paul's historic story highlights the aspects of his ministry to Ephesus and probably his ministry in all the cities. These, these aspects feature in his charge to the elders and the challenges that they will face. 
He's not just telling the story to make himself look good. He's telling the story because as he and the elders have experienced these things, they will experience them again. And in analyzing them also, we can identify important motivations and objectives of the Christian life. Paul's story runs roughly chronologically. He deals with the past before discussing the present and his possible future. He desires the elders to share his assessment about his time with them as he looks forward to that uncertain future. And I want us to analyze this passage under these three headings, a shared past, a shared present, and a shared verdict. Shared past, shared present, and shared verdict. Before we begin looking at the speech itself, let's review the history of this meeting. In verse 17, we read, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Now, the distance by land from Miletus to Ephesus is over 60 miles because you have to go around a bay on which the Miletus is on the southern edge and then navigate uh, some passes through a mountains, mountainous region to get to Ephesus. If you take a boat across the bay upon which Miletus sits, uh, you, have, you can cut it down to 40 miles over land. And we may think and consider that it took the best part of four to five days uh, for messengers from Miletus to go to Ephesus, uh, gather the elders, and for them to all go back to this meeting. Paul is hurrying to Jerusalem. He wants to be at Jerusalem before Pentecost, but he feels that he can afford five days in order to give this last charge to the leaders of a church that apparently meant so much to him. And we see the, this heart in his story of his ministry content and its extent. Now, ought we to accuse Paul of hyperbole uh, in verse 18? And when they were come unto him, he said unto them, Ye know that from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you in all seasons. Paul says, From the first day I entered into the Roman province of Asia, you know how I lived among you. Now, if you know your, your history and uh, of the third missionary journey and the, ge the rough geography, you'll know that Paul came uh, from the east into Asia, and Ephesus is on the most western edge of that, that Roman province. And so, uh, it might, you might wonder, well, do they really know what Paul was like? After all, it would take him a while to get through Asia to get to Ephesus, even though we understand from Luke's narrative that Paul makes a beeline from Galatia to Ephesus uh, when he enters into Asia. Well, I don't, think he, I don't think Paul is talking in hyperbo hyperbolic language because perhaps the Ephesians elders include some from the cities along the path Paul took through Asia to get to Ephesus. After all, Acts records, and we know uh, from what Luke has recorded for us, that the gospel spread from Paul's ministry in Ephesus throughout the entire region of Ephesus. In fact, Demetrius the silversmith is very concerned that the entire region of Asia is being taken over by the gospel of Paul. Combined in that room, listening to Paul, he probably sees faces that represented his entire time in Asia, the three years that he spent in Ephesus. And so that he could even say that they knew how he lived before them for the entirety of this time. And for this reason, Paul selects his material to fit his argument. They know not just what he is going to say, but all of the things that they, that they would be reminded of by what he is presenting to them. 
So Paul summarizes the extent of his ministry and trials. Verse uh, uh, 19, Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Notice the concepts that Paul begins with in uh, verse 19, servanthood and humility. These might seem strange to us because Paul never relinquishes his apostolic authority. While he is in Ephesus, he is going to write at least two letters to Corinth, and probably a third and maybe a fourth, uh, in which at least in the ones that are, uh, we have in the Bible, he is advancing and standing upon his apostolic authority and sometimes defending it. And yet the nature of that task comes from his understanding of himself as a servant of God. He will say of his apostolic office that we are made, that we, the apostles, are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. We can see how Paul uses this to remind the elders of the proper mentality of their calling. That yes, they are leaders, but first and foremost, they are servants of God and they are to do their task with humility of mind, understanding their weakness and their dependence upon God. Along with this inward conception, the calling involves endurance. Paul talks about enduring tear, suffering, trials, and plots. And it's interesting because Jewish plots in Ephesus don't figure prominently in Luke's history of, of his time there. But we remember that other challenge. We remember the seven sons of Sceva, and we can, uh, a Jewish, not plot, but uh, counter to Paul's gospel message as they try to use Paul's name and Jesus' name as some kind of uh, mystical talisman. And we can only assume that other plots and threats came from that quarter. Paul also mentions the breadth of his ministry, that he didn't keep anything hidden from them from the gospel. He expounded to them the whole counsel of God, as he will say later. He was very broad in his ministry talking about this, uh, this reality. And as broad as the topic of this ministry, so broad was the reach of his ministry. He preached to them publicly from the halls of Tyrannus, but he also preached house to house, probably referring to uh, home churches that he visited in Ephesus. But perhaps most significantly, Paul reviews the essence of the message that he preached and taught to the church in Ephesus in verse 21, testifying to both the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, in this verse, he pointedly reminds the elders of his proclamation to both Jew and Gentile, even though it seems he refers obliquely to Jewish plots we have no record of in, in Scripture, he did not hesitate to preach and proclaim to the Jews repentance and faith. We know that this was the first part of his ministry there in, in Ephesus. He spent a, quite a, a long time uh, in the Jewish synagogue proclaiming Christ unto them before forced out. He preaches unto them, both Jew and Gentile. Again, this uh, mention of both sides reveals a racial division and challenge that has not vanished in Paul's many years of ministry, going all the way back to the Jerusalem Council. Years after that great decision, this issue still warrants Paul's attention that, he is, that the church is to proclaim the gospel to all kinds of people, Jew, Gentile, uh, free, a slave, male, female. 
And this proclamation of the gospel to all is still a challenge uh, to the church hundreds of years after Paul wrote this, uh, Paul said this to the Ephesian elders. And yet the center of Paul's concern uh, involves the message of Jesus. And Paul summarizes it with two words in this verse, repentance and faith. And I suggest to you that we cannot find two more apt words to summarize the gospel. Paul uses the phrase repentance towards God. It reminds us of the plight of man, that we stand before God condemned by our sin, that we cannot make ourselves right before God, and that the least that we owe to Him is turning from the evil that is within, the stain of evil on our hearts, our minds, our desires, and our deeds. We owe him this repentance, this turning away from sin and a turning to holiness, and yet even that is beyond our natural abilities because we are born in sin, enslaved to sin. And instead of turning from sin and repentance, we, outside of Christ, revel in sin. Yet the second part is also tied to the first, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, for what we could never do, Jesus does for us. Lord, here in the word, Lord Jesus Christ, signals that this Jesus was and is God, that he is God-made man, born of Mary a virgin, that Jesus means Savior. That name that is given to him indicates his office as Savior, but also, finally, Christ means anointed one, the Messiah, the chosen one of God to save man who is God. And he does so by living a perfect life that we ought to have lived but didn't, he perfectly obeyed so that, we, so that he could be the sinless, spotless sacrifice for sin. And that death on the cross condemned not for his sins, not for his crimes, but for the crimes of his people. Rising the third day, proving that the sacrifice worked and that man could live in the presence of God forever. Faith and repentance, Paul uses as twinned ideas. The one who believes repents. The one who has faith in Jesus Christ also has repentance before God. You cannot accept Jesus as Savior and believe the truth about sin and its place before God and remain a sinner and sinning. Faith means a turning away from sin. That is the great message that Paul proclaimed to the church at Ephesus, and it is the message to you as well. And the great question is about you. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did not just for others, not for the good or the great, not for someone who is different from you, but for you as an individual? That is what it means to have faith towards Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you see the truth about sin and in believing in Jesus, turn from sin and follow him? That is what it means to repent. This is obviously a summary of what Paul taught. We can, Paul did not just talk about repentance and faith. He talked about all kinds of things. And you can understand that because he refers to uh, teaching this to both Jew and Gentile and the necessity of that unity within the church. We can infer from this passage that Paul taught uh, this truth And that summary adjusts our valuation of theology and doctrine. Now, I'm a a fan of deep thinkers, and uh, I enjoy valuable insights. But if it does not bring us to this simple gospel, if it does not support or strengthen or deepen or apply or encourage faith and repentance, of what use is the most subtle doctrine and theology? 
the gospel, the truth about Christ, and the truth about God must dominate all theology and doctrine. But there's more here, for the gospel must dominate all of life. It seems paradoxically that both simplistic and complex to reduce all life to faith and repentance, but I firmly believe that all life must be lived as a Christian in the inescapable light of the gospel and before the face of God. We try to make life more complex than this reality that we are to live it by faith and repentance before God. This is the truth that Paul preached. This is the truth that the elders of Ephesus believed. It is their shared past. But secondly, we see the shared present. Paul's time with the elders is not without trial. We can identify the seams of the story here uh, with the introduction in verse 22 of the phrase, And now behold, Paul separates his speech with these words. You see it appear again in verse 25. The present for Paul presents uncertainty, but Paul claims an inward serenity. Now, contrary to some commentators, I do not think that Paul acts contrary to the will of God. In verse 22, And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me, save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. We have to compare this to the prophecy of Agabus uh, in and the statement in the next chapter, in chapter 22, verse 4, uh, he meets with some people who uh, said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Agabus, we know, will tell Paul and visibly demonstrate before Paul that he will be bound and arrested in Jerusalem. Paul does not know what will happen, but knows that it will be bad. And this tension fits with the story of Acts. You see, Paul does not go up to Jerusalem in a bullheaded fashion, as some commentators have argued that he does. He goes because he believes that he must. He goes compelled by the Spirit, and I can only believe that he means the Holy Spirit. That the same Spirit warns others what will await Paul and Jerusalem does not deter Paul from the inward call that he has on his life. I think people worry, look at this, and worry that God uh, would be so unkind, if I put that in air quotes, to tell someone to do something and then warn them about poor results that will follow. But is this not a familiar thing for us in the Old Testament? The Lord told Isaiah, Jeremiah, and many other prophets that then sent them to Israel, telling them that the people won't listen. Even Jesus said of Paul in Acts 9, 16, in that great uh, story of his regeneration and repentance, he said, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul goes where the Spirit sends him, even when that same Spirit tells him that he must suffer in the journey. And why should this concern us? Did we think that life would be without suffering? Did we assume that the path of the cross would be a path without a cross to carry? And so Paul faces it with serenity. Look at verse 24. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. 
and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. The potential suffering did not dissuade Paul from doing what he believed was the next step of his ministry, even if it cost his life. He knew that the Lord had laid the path of his service from before the foundation of the world, as you can see him writing this in Ephesians 2.10. He walked the path set for him in pursuit of joy, imitating his Savior. Look at that, I, that I might finish my course with joy. He's imitating the Lord Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That path, that ministry, that service all came down to one thing for Paul, who puts it in apposition to the word course. He is finishing his course, that is the ministry that was given to him, and that course and that ministry is summed up at the end of verse, of verse 24, testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's life boiled down to the Damascus Road and the grace that he knew from God, being a persecutor of Christ. In 1 Timothy 1, he echoes this, saying, I, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul did it because he recognized who he was and what grace he had been given. Stephen King, an expert on human fear, wrote, what, What's behind the door or looking at the top of the stairs is never as, as frightening as the door and the staircase itself. H.P. Lovecraft wrote, The oldest and strongest emotion in, of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Paul doesn't know what's going to occur to him, but that doesn't dissuade him. How often, though, do we shrink back in fear from advancing into the unknown? God calls us to progress, to advance in our holiness and in our service of Him. And that means doing things for which we cannot predict the result. It means saying things likely to be received wrongly. It means putting ourselves in uncomfortable places. It used to be popular to talk about our comfort zones and getting out of our comfort zones. But I think that talk was superficial in not dealing with the terror of the unknown that is so eloquently expressed in these experts in terror that has come and arrived in humanity in the garden. The terror of the unknown is seen in the, the response of Adam and Eve when God comes calling. How is God going to respond to us now? Paul faces the unknown and pursues joy for a reason. Something has to dispel our terror. Something has to be powerful enough to enable us to face our fear of the unknown and continue regardless. And the only thing powerful enough, I believe, is what Paul uses, grace and joy. 
If we trust our everlasting soul to the unseen power of Jesus' person and work, surely we ought to be able to trust our lives to the path that our Savior has given unto us. If we can see the grace and the joy that the Lord has already put into our path and already given us in Christ, shall we not endure suffering if it comes for the grace and joy to come? See, the thing about the unknown, the closed door, is that we expect the title when Tiger, when the Lord would present the lady, if you know the old, old story. But unlike that story, the Lord has unconditional and unwavering love for his people. And we have every reason to assume that each door that he gives unto us and puts into our path leads to a blessing. That whatever lies behind the door, be it tiger or lady, the ultimate objective results in our good. And perhaps the path to our greatest reward and blessing lies in the path of suffering. For each door that we face in our life is usually not the end of the story. It usually leads on to another door and another and another following the path that God has set for us. We see the shared past and the shared present. And finally, I want us to look at a shared verdict. All Paul's history leads to a conclusion, a judgment he is asking the elders to share with him. Before he begins his charge to them, he comes to this conclusion to assert his vindication. Paul introduces the next section in a rather pessimistic way. Look at verse 25. And now behold, remember those are the three uh, buzzwords that give you the idea that he's transitioning to a new idea. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. This statement also finds its detractors in the commentaries for those who interpret 1 Timothy 1 to require a return trip of Paul and Timothy to Ephesus. But this is speculative since uh, the history of Paul subsequent to Acts is merely tra traditional. Uh, Paul again reminds the elders of the evidence that they already know. They know of Paul's preaching the gospel, here called the kingdom of God. More, they are part of that kingdom. More, they are overseers of that kingdom, and he's calling upon them as members of that kingdom, as overseers of that kingdom, as elders, to have to exercise their duty and their right to proclaim and to judge according to that which the Lord has entrusted to their cause. This brings Paul to his objective for this historical prologue, in addition to the introduction to the charge. So, some of this, you know, this history has two points. Why is Paul talking about this? One, he is setting the stage for his charge, which we'll get to next week, but also he is setting the stage for this verdict he wants the elders to read. Look at verse 26. Wherefore, I take to you record this day that I am pure of the blood of all men. What does this verse mean? Well, to understand it, I suggest that we need to look at Ezekiel 33. And uh, you can turn there, if you would, uh, briefly as we look at Ezekiel 33, uh, verses 1 to 9. There, Ezekiel is talking, uh, the Lord speaks to Ezekiel again and says in verse 1, Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of Israel and say unto them, when I bring the sword upon a land, if a people of the land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchman, 
If when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if, he, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be on his own head. If he heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning, his blood shall be upon him. But if he that taketh warning he shall, de- but he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee as a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt, therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked of his ways, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his ways to turn from it, if he do not turn from his ways, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Now, this passage, I believe, is what is behind Paul's statement here. But this passage must be understood rightly. This passage does not mean that we all have a duty to evangelize everyone and that a failure to do so means that their blood rests upon us. Again, we face the problem of the word all. Does it mean all people at all times everywhere? Does it mean all of the Ephesians? And I don't think so. Rather, consider how Paul uses it. He applies it to those who are overseers of the kingdom of God to the elders of that kingdom. Just as Ezekiel, when he is talking in these verses about the watchman that is set up, he is, though, he is the watchman to watch over God's people Israel. They have, a, they have jurisdiction over the church, not necessarily over the world. What Paul wants them to pronounce is that he has fulfilled his duty to God's people in Ephesus. I have warned where warning is needed. I have proclaimed unto you the full counsel of God, because this is going to lead right into the charge because he's going to to warn them again. In fact, look at verse uh, 28, the first word, take heed, beware, be warned. Bad things are coming. He is innocent of the blood of the the entire church because he has declared the full counsel of God. Verse 27, for I have not shunned to you to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Again, why do I say that this focuses upon his duty to the church? Because he says to the elders, I have discharged this. I am innocent of the blood because I have fulfilled, I have faithfully proclaimed to you, to the church, to the elders, the full counsel of God. He's warned where warning was needed and will do so again. Consider what he, how he begins in verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter among you, not sparing the flock. Be warned. Their wolves are coming. A Christian, the wolves aren't just outside the church, as we normally like to think that they are, but within. And way within. Look what Paul says in verse 31. Therefore watch, in rem- uh, verse uh, 30, uh, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. 
Paul says, among you elders, there's going to be some that arise, rise up and try to divide the church. We who see ourselves as sheep today may find ourselves acting like wolves tomorrow. And so Paul's caution to them is therefore watch and remember. Be on guard and remember what you have been taught to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way in which he, Paul, had demonstrated the way of servant leadership as he was a servant of God and humble of mind. Now, Paul and Ezekiel speak only as regards those who God calls to be uh, on the watchtower, watchmen, elders, pastors. And not all have that calling and responsibility, neither uh, should any but those who are called assume such responsibility or guilt unto themselves. And yet, we have a duty, as all God's people. We have a duty to warn, and our duty to warn begins with our own heart, as Paul's first warning to the elders is, watch yourself. Because from your own number, trouble can come. Our duty to warn begins with our own heart, to warn it against pride, of lo- pride, love of comfort, love of reputation, to warn it against fear of the unknown, to warn it against lack of trust in God, to warn it against coolness and division. This idea of warning involves the idea of correcting, and I hate correcting others, and I hate being corrected even more. I I frequently feel that it is patently unjust and inaccurate when people correct me, often resulting in inadvertent or intentional misunderstanding of something that I said or something that I think. And yet, even in the worst accusations, I have learned to look for the truth in order to become a better pastor. And when I say a better pastor, I mean little more than I see how really poor a pastor I I am uh, currently And the fact that I have gotten to this place wasn't easy, and I still struggle with this, having to put aside my inner lawyer, uh, justifying myself, and honestly looking to see where, even in unjust correction, I have participated in error. Because dealing with sin in ourselves and in others is hard work. I don't have easy answers on what it means to warn people and warn ourselves, and neither does Paul. He doesn't catalog his work in Ephesus. He doesn't go through and say, all right, this is the way that you infallibly can go about warning people in order for them uh, to repent. Even God in Ezekiel doesn't say that. He says you're to warn them, and if they repent, then it's great. If they fail, then it's not on you. They die in their iniquity. All the conversations that he he had, he is relying upon them to remember. All of his preaching and teaching, the work of living the Christian life, the church life that he shared with these men, they knew him and knew how he dealt with Christian living. They were to be trained in the Word and to understand the principles of God and to understand that correction doesn't always end the way we think it will end. Warning people often is not going to end the way we like it, and that's, again, the unknown. But we are to be faithful to proclaim, as Paul did, the whole counsel of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we learn so much from Paul.
we learn the concepts of service and humility. We learn obedience even in the face of the terror of the unknown. We learn the hard work of Christian living and warning of our own hearts. We pray that by your grace we would learn these lessons and sear them into our hearts. Work in us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.